Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Margo Lampton. I'm the Senior Director for Education Programs here at the National Committee. And I'm delighted that we have Mungin Khan here, all the way up from the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, um, to talk with us about his very interesting and important book on the internet and cyberspace will give us a presentation and then open the floor for questions. Please, Dr. Han, it's all yours. Thank you. Um, dear distinguished guests, thank you very much for coming despite this weather. Um, special thanks to the U.S. Uh, committee, uh, to the uh, National Committee on U.S.-China Relations for making this possible. Um, it's really a pleasure and honor for me to be invited. Um, so what's my talk about? In a nutshell, I want to explain how the rise of the internet in China has empowered um, and challenged, uh, has empowered the society and challenged authoritarian rule, but hasn't caused an Arab Spring-like revolution in China. So China was first connected to the internet in 1987. The first email sent out by a group of Chinese scientists to their German counterparts was across the Great Wall, we can reach every corner in the world. In retrospect, it's pretty ironic because the Chinese government has set up this, you know, um, great firewall to prevent its citizens from reaching every corner in the world. Today, China has the largest internet population across the globe, 802 million uh, as of June 2018. Um, approximately 58% of the population. Millions of Chinese citizens surf the internet every day to, um, um, to, to um, access information, play games, do shopping, social, and also most importantly to express themselves. Since China went online, there has been the expectation that the new technology would help democratize and liberalize the regime. Many studies have revealed the empowering effects of the internet, um, s showing that it has provided a relatively free space of expression, um, thus enabling a nascent public sphere, promoting the development of civil society, uh, um, facilitating collective action, and even empowering dissident activism. These arguments are all well-studied, reasoned, uh, um, and also uh, empirically supported. Yet, when Chinese dissidents, inspired by the Arab Spring, try to mobilize for the Jasmine Revolution in 2011, they failed. As this picture shows, there are literally hundreds of bystanders. There are also hundreds of policemen and also reporters not actually captured by this picture. But only a handful of protesters. Okay. This picture is telling in many ways, but what's most striking to me is the lack of public resonance to dissident activism. 
So why the internet has yet to disrupt authoritarian rule in China? In the past 18 years, I've been observing the struggle over online expression, initially as a participant, then as a researcher. My research led me to believe that uh, to assess the impact of the internet on Chinese politics, we have to study not only the cat and mouse um, censorship game, but also how the state, its critics, and netizens competed, um, tried to engineer popular opinion to their advantage without directly confronting each other. So, in the meantime, this is kind of the result of my book. In the meantime, uh, in the remaining time, we'll first um, examine the struggle over online expression from the perspective of cat and mouse censorship game and explain why state control um, and censorship cannot explain authoritarian resilience. And we will then um, look at how the state regime critics and various netizens groups um, have competed in online expression, thereby showing how polarization has ironically uh, worked to the advantage of the authoritarian state. Then I will conclude the talk. So let's first look at the cat and mouse struggle. The graph illustrates it vividly. So you can see the internet has created a relative free space for netizens, okay? But the state has attempted to uh, limit the freedoms of the netizens with those intermediary actors trapped in between. You can see that the state has launched many campaigns and the netizens have been constantly fighting back. As many know, China has set up the world's most sophisticated censorship system. Besides the technical components like real name registration, uh, keyword filtering, the great firewall, and so forth, um, the system involves a series of laws and regulations um, designed to manage online content, and various state and non-state actors devoted to this work. In particular, uh, the state puts much pressure on service providers, holding them accountable 24-7. Um, sometimes driving them nuts. Okay, one of the foreign managers I interviewed took his battery off the cell phone and insisted I do the same thing. And in our conversations, he inserted phrases like, long live the CCP, we all support the party central committee. Okay, worried, he was worried that uh, the big brother was watching. He might be a little bit paranoid but his concerns were not completely warranted, unwarranted because he had been invited to tea several times. Invited to tea being a satirical way of being, uh, saying that uh, it was detained and questioned informally by the authorities. Okay, so sounds quite rigged, right? But there are still some openings that can um, be exploited. First, differences within the government. Um, create opportunities for expression, for example. When the Ministry of Education um, tries to close down many of the campus forums, they dislike it because those forums created trouble for them, okay? The Communists usually see those forums as an opportunity to engage young people and conduct sort work. That's their assigned role. So they prefer to co-opt rather than suppressing those forums. Um, second, 
the government uh, relies on service providers to implement a lot of the censorship tasks. Um, service providers are thus under real and huge pressure, but their compliance a lot of the times are involuntary. So that creates a little bit of space. Plus, there's always a free space beyond the Great Firewall. Third, motivated citizens are almost always able to overcome the obstacles to access and spread information. In particular, the censorship system relies much on the keyword filtering, but the users are creative, and they have lots of ways to evade that censorship creatively. Creatively. Okay, sorry for that. Um, so, the most straightforward way is breaking the keywords apart, right? So, instead of saying 89, which refers to the 1989 Tiananmen Square movement, they can say 8 asterisk 9. Uh, of course, the state evolves and they started to censor this 8 asterisk 9. But there's always kind of, you know, tit for tat game going on. And the word play is not just. Um, um, kind of about evading censorship. It's actually now part of an online culture. Okay, so on the left side, this is the famous meme of grass mud horse, initially a dirty pun, means F your mother, I'm sorry. Um, but now it's a symbol of anti-censorship because it's associated with a war against river crab, which is another holy animal, stands for censorship because river crab in Chinese has the same pronunciation with the state ideology harmony, Xie. Okay. On the right side is a picture called when President Trump met President Xi. I don't have to tell you which dish refers to President Trump, right? Um, but the steamed bun refers to President Xi Jinping. He was nicknamed and mocked as Xi the bun because he once bought a meal at a Beijing bun shop, which is considered a silly political stunt by many. Okay. So, in sum, censorship in China is pervasive and strong, but not always effective. As Molly Roberts found, uh, while the state has managed to keep the majority of the population out of the information loop, motivated citizens are almost always able to overcome obstacles. Uh, in fact, state censorship is often counterproductive and has become a new source of grievances. So if you go online in China, you will still see a lot of criticism. This is why we need to go beyond this cat and mouse struggle over the boundaries, the limits of censorship. Indeed, the cat and mouse censorship struggle is not the only game in town. The state has, the state has neither the capacity nor the intention to eliminate political expression entirely. Moreover, online expression is also fragmented. So this graph co co conveys the idea nicely. You can see that the netizens fall into different camps, championing different ideologies and beliefs, and they fight with each other. This fragmentation allows the state, regime critics, and various netizens uh, groups to really work popular opinion to their advantage. So from the state's perspective, to win the discourse competition, the state has innovated to improve the reach of the propaganda and also to make its views more appealing. One of the tactics is particularly worth highlighting, trolling. 
taking advantage of the anonymous, anonymous nature of online expression, the state sponsors anonymous trolls, um, popularly known as the 50 Cent Army, because um, reportedly they are paid 50 cents RMB per post uh, to push government views online. That picture shows a training section of the 50 Cent Army in Sanxi, prov uh, Sanxi province. This seems to be smart, but it doesn't really work and often backfires. Why? Because those doing the job were not super motivated. So look at those comments on a report on Xi Jinping. They are all super positive. Sorry for the kind of tiny uh, fonts, but okay, they are su all super positive, but they all smell official to anyone reading them. They're all from the same city, okay, and posted at a quite constant pace. Look at the time intervals, right? Um, it's unlikely that uh, netizens from a particular city all motivated to post on this particular report at that particular moment at a rate of about every minute a post, right? Um, so they're obviously fake. Um, so if the state censorship and trolling strategies don't work, does that mean that uh, regime critics are going to kind of winning the discourse competition? Not really. In fact, pluralization of online expression has helped the government because besides creating space for critics, it also empowers spontaneous regime defenders. The voluntary 50 cent army is a key force among pro-regime voices. The term literally means the 50 cent army that carries its own rations. Um, in other words, those netizens are not state sponsored, but they defend the state on their own. How do I know that they are spontaneous? First of all, um, they speak a different language code compared to the state, uh, state trolls. Second of all, they are active on different places compared to those state uh, trolls. Um, and they are sometimes critical towards the government. Okay. Um, Sometimes they side with the dissidents. For instance, they call the former premier Wen Jiabao the best actor, just like the dissidents. They hate the propaganda department, saying that it's uh, incompetent and corrupt, which is pretty true. Um, of course, the more direct reason is that I know some of them quite well. Okay, how has this voluntary 50 cent army contributed to the rise of pro-regime discourse? Um, they've done so through a number of what I call rhetoric games. Um, that are truly creative, entertaining, and um, popular among netizens. As a result, they work more effectively they state, than state propaganda. So let's look at a few of those uh, rhetoric games. First, labeling. Labeling wars. In one sense, voluntary 50 cent army members are victims of labeling because um, they got the 50 cent component in their title uh, because they are regarded as state trolls by other netizens. But this labeling does not go in one direction. So they also throw a number of labels towards their opponents in online debate. Those labels include U.S. Sense Army, which is very self-explanatory, Dog Food Party, saying those people are begging foreign powers like dogs begging for food, and Road Leading Party referring to people leading the way for invaders. Okay, 
all those labels evoke nationalist sentiment and accuse the Poland of being the agents of foreign powers. Face slapping. Given the symbolic uh, significance of face, means in Chinese society, face slapping refers to a radical and direct confrontation with opponents by pointing out their factual errors and logic uh, mistakes. So here's one example. There's a widely circulated post online uh, titled Constructing Sino-U.S. Government Office Buildings, uh, putting together deluxe Chinese government office buildings with, with austere U.S. ones, conveying a very powerful message that the Chinese officials are prioritizing their own comforts over the need of the people. While this carries a canal of truth, watchful netizens find signs of manipulation. This is only part of the post, okay? So um, all the pictures of the Chinese government buildings are all correct, okay? But the U.S. ones are all distorted in one way or the other. Some of them are simply fake, others are uh, purposefully miniaturized, and still others are from tiny cities of a southern or so residents, which is not really comparable to the Chinese uh, um, government. So, um, for example, in the post, this is claimed to be the State House of Massachusetts, but really this is the um, City Hall of Brockton, Massachusetts, they find out. And watchful, the voluntary 50 cent army members find this is actually the State House of Massachusetts. So they did a lot of work trying to confront those people, saying that uh, I'm here to slap your face because you were doing something, you know, factually wrong. Um, fishing is one of the most popular game among voluntary 50 cent army. It takes advantage of people's tendency to believe what they want to believe and uh, hooks netizens with force or fabricated uh, information. The game has four stages. First, preparing the bait, a message, fabricated message, and then spread it on the targeted platforms, okay? And then they would, you know, collect evidence of those who are gullible enough to fall for the message and the four stages laughing at them. Okay, laughing at them plays a function because that promotes the solidarity among those people. But anyways, there's one example. Anetism fabricated a story of an imaginary environmental scientist, okay, who proposed a theory that uh, high-speed trains would cause massive geological disasters. Two key concepts in the make-believe theory, Charles Schiff Force and Stephen King effect, are actually named after two fellow forum users, okay? Uh, they are defining lands, but named after two fellow forum users, so they are fake. Widely reproduced online, this message article hooked many people, despite the efforts by netizens as well as the Chinese Academy of Science to debunk it, okay? The pick of the story is that um, the non-existent professor was actually quoted by a Chinese newspaper after the train accident in June, in July 2011. So this very fact reinforces the belief among the voluntary 50 cent army that there is a group of pro-liberal media, okay, who are um, trying to kind of push for a preset agenda that blind Chinese people from simple facts or try to distort popular opinion. 
The vol voluntary 50 Cent Army also mobilizes um, shared nationalistic emotions and beliefs. The mobilization can be very playful and relatable to netizens, such is more effective than state propaganda. Here's one example. The Ear Hair Affair is a comic series based on playful narratives of modern Chinese history that depicts a very positive image of the party in unifying and building China. So I can't use here, but yes, there is a picture of General Liu Huaqing, okay? So he was then the vice chief of the general staff. He visited the U.S. carrier Ranger in 1980. So there was a picture of him looking at the equipment on the U.S. Um, carrier. Um, and, and then there's a comic version of that. Basically, the message kind of is trying to convey, uh, the, the netizens trying to convey is that, um, as one of the users commented, it, Liu was looking at the equipment like a toy, uh, like a kid looking at a toy in a toy store but couldn't afford it. Okay, so the message is very powerful and very emotional. Um, so um, it conveys the, the, the sentiment so well that, uh, yes, um, it attracted hundreds of replies almost immediately. And many of those who replied said they were moved to tears. Okay. So uh, the Ear Hair Affair has actually been adapted uh, into a, a, a kind of a, a comic videos, uh, into comic videos. There are other rhetoric games, so for the time's sake, I won't go into them. But what links them all is that they create the national, uh, a very strong pro-regime discourse, help neutralize regime critics, and also build deeper and broader ties among those uh, netizens, like-minded. Many of them become real-life friends, and they started to uh, set up groups and media platforms, such as Apro Media, which formerly was known as AntiCN.com, and also Guancha, uh, to amplify their voices. Um, but let me briefly summarize. On the one hand, the Chinese state is strong and adaptive, um, but its handling of the internet is often ineffective and sometimes counterproductive. On the other hand, the Chinese cyberspace is quite pluralistic. Um, while this helps regime critics, it also provides the space for regime defenders. Thus, my overall take-home message is that um, the survival of the Chinese state depends not much on the state's capacity to control and to censor, but on the fact that a vigorous discourse competition is underway between the supporters and critics, which gives a fair amount of breathing space to the regime. Okay, thank you very much for your presentation. Thank you. Please. Please identify yourself. Sure. Bill, I'm a retired journalist. Uh, Taiwan had an election on Saturday, and Correct. I was in Taiwan in August, and people then were expressing concern that China would try to interfere in the election. Do you know if, in fact, that actually happened? Was there any Chinese interference? To be honest, I was watching the election very closely this time on YouTube. Um, I'm not watching kind of what's happening inside the Chinese uh, uh, cyberspace. What I observe on YouTube is that there are many mainland netizens commenting on the political commentary uh, TV programs um, in, in Taiwan. 
and I can see generally it's, it's kind of very pluralistic, but a lot of the mainland Chinese are using a satiric faction to help the KMT, the Nationalist Party, because they say it's in the in mainland's interest to continue supporting the DPP ruling because that would ruin Taiwan in favor of mainland. Of course, that, that's a satiric way of saying it. Um, I don't see any sign of the state coordinating uh, the, the attack there. And, and I think the Chinese government, first of all, in general, the deployment of the 50 cent army, most of the time, my observation um, is that they are inward looking. They're trying to shape domestic audience perceptions towards the government rather than trying to reach out in general. They might be, there might be an elite group of people doing that. And second of all, it's actually um, the Chinese government is very careful in terms of interfering uh, with what's happening in Taiwan. Because first of all, um, there is going to be a backlash if the Taiwanese side learns about it. Uh, second of all, they are ambivalent towards what's going on there. Many Chinese actually think it's not good for KMT to rule uh, Taiwan because by saying we're not trying to get independence, um, they are asking for favor treatment from the mainland. That's interpretation of those netizens. And they don't like it. They said we should stop all those favor treatments to Taiwan because they, they would only subdue if we force them with the harsh kind of conditions and say, you know, you suffer economically, then you will realize collaboration with mainland is very, very important. My name is Irving Lee. Sorry, I can't um, It seems that um, any political movement that is worth a grain of salt is, must have a political, political perspective and platform mm -hmm. uh, in order to be viable, whether it's, you have an internet or not. Mm -hmm. right? yep. So the question is, in these discussions and debates, what are the general criticisms I mean, legitimate criticisms of the Communist Party in China. Mm -hmm. What would they do, what they should be doing differently to make things better? And my personal perspective, I haven't seen anything out there that shows mm -hmm. we could do better. Right. I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric, and I, I've seen this even within the United States, the, the so-called opposition in the United States, where a lot of these nonprofits right. say, and do, say things and do things at the domestic level here and the local level that I'm dealing with, that's a lot of it's rhetoric and, and lacks substance. And we find out all these nonprofits, they, they get these monies from uh, like the Ford Foundation, something mm -hmm. like that. So, to me, to me, you have to generally you have to have a really good political perspective in the debates in order to be viable. And right now, I don't see that. And I, I personally think that. And I remember as a young man, when 1999 occurred, you know, I thought there was a lot of rhetoric. But what happens if the CCP was overthrown? What the ramifications would be? I thought it would have been catastrophic. Right. Okay. So I saw, the, I saw the color revolution happen in 89. Right. Not you know, let alone. I mean, it happened much earlier. So, the, so basically the question is, what on, what's the discourse that says, hey, look, there's a better way? What is that? What is the substance okay. of the discourse? So it's more a comment than a question, frankly speaking. Well, yeah, it's a question, valid and very important. What is it? What is yeah. it? I don't see it. Yes. It's very important. Actually, in the conclusion chapter, I divide kind of the criticism towards the Chinese system in two broader senses, uh, broad sense. One is actually we're done with the regime. We, we don't want the regime uh, because it's not democratic. It's not liberal. It's like we have problem with the regime. Okay. 
and there's a bigger group of people basically saying we're okay with the regime so far as it's delivering. So it keeps kind of, you know, getting better in terms of governance, solving all the problems. If there's poverty, yes, let's eliminate the poverty. If there's corruption, let's kind of cure corruption. Right. If there's environmental pollution, that kind of improve environment. All those kind of things are categorized as, to me, as kind of governance issues. And, and generally, that's kind of the rhetoric, rhetoric of the voluntary 50s and army to a certain extent because they believe that the, the Communist Party, even though be, all the bad sides about it, all the ills, despite all the ills, they are doing a pretty good job in terms of delivering so far. So it's better let's stick in this way rather than having a kind of regime transition because of the uncertainty involved. Right. And also it's like, yes, a democracy like the US or Western European countries would be welcome, a huge a good thing, right? Everybody would like that, but who can gr guarantee that, right? You might might end up in a kind of chaotic situation. Or in the Middle East. Or yes, that's kind of exactly what they say. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I'm not a part of this at all yet. Yeah. So I, I think it's like what what you've just said. It's like that's um, that makes sense because it's like um, the voluntary fifties and army are not just blindly defending the regime, right? They have a reason. No matter whether we agree with them or not, they have a reason, pretty solid one to a certain extent. Unless you truly believe that we should, you know, try to achieve democracy and freedom no matter what, right? They are not prioritizing democracy and freedoms to a large extent. Okay. Yeah. I have a yeah, we can talk later. Okay. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Elizabeth Ship. I'm a journalist. I apologize for arriving no late, and you probably covered this, but I'm just really curious um, about freedom of expression on the internet in China, because mm -hmm. it appears the Chinese internet has, you know, is vibrant and it's taken a life of its own, very independent of, you know, the internet here in the United States. Just wondering, there seems to be freedom of expression, a political freedom of expression, okay. and there's a great documentary about. Um, social media queens who have their own channels and they make a lot of money through these very free media. Right. But I, I, it just seems very paradoxical that you have unbridled freedom and then political repression as well. How does that, how do they not clash with each other as often as they That's a very good question, okay. Um, first of all, I'm sorry, I'm a political scientist. So by training, I'm paying more attention to certain things other than other things. But the point you raised is a very important one because by studying the internet, we really re recognize that the vast majority of the population are not politically motivated most of the time. Remember, it's like they are not motivated most of the time. That means, first of all, the vast majority of them are not political or pursuing political agenda. But at the same time, they can be politicized at certain moments, right? Um, so in that regard, it's like as a political scientist, I'm more interested in those more political netizens or those moments that uh, the vast majority of people who were previously not politicized become politicized, right? So those are the things I'm interested in. But the question you are asking is a very important one in that uh, we have to recognize the very fact that the vast majority of the population are not politically motivated. In robots, Molly Robots kind of term, it's like they are rationally ignorant. Okay. 
I don't think that's a good term because I think it does have political implications for them not being politically motivated most of the time, first of all. That have implications for the re regime's resilience. Second of all, I think there's politics going on. Exactly as you just you were just said, it's like in the US, right, if you go fishing, you need to get a fish permit, right? In China, you don't have to. So in that way, you know, US is kind of less free than China. But is that actually a good thing or not? It just means that the state capacity is not there. There's a one aspect of people's life not regulated, right? So we have to distinguish between regulation and control in a certain sense. And also, my next project is going to look at the everyday politics of internet. I'm looking into the phenomenon that's, our, that, that's largely not political. I'm gonna focus on internet novels. Okay, so in China, there are millions of people writing internet novels and published online by instruments, and people read them kind of every day, paying like a few cents every day to read them. Do you think that's political? A lot of the times, not, but there is politics. There is a lot of politics because sometimes they got censored by the state for various reasons, even non-political ones. There's one author got censored. He was writing about kind of a totally imaginary world which is not relevant to this universe. He got censored because the party thinks that he wrote about the plots that kind of resemble something about kind of religious struggle in China. So the party get nervous and said, okay, you shouldn't do this, right? There's, there's also a huge genre of novels, what we call history novels or military novels. They're very political. They're very political because they project imagination about ancient China and today's China in the list sense, right? Even if we're not talking about all other political implications. So I'm, I, I'm heading in that direction, just kind of trying to study more about it. I don't know what to kind of say, give you a definite answer to what you've just asked, but it's a very, very big realm. Hi, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm very interested uh, in your statement about uh, Xi Jinping's visit to the Baozi shop being seen as a, as a nakedly political stunt. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm curious, you know, something I also really struggle to understand from the outside is sort of the prevalence of cynicism right. among the, the youth, more youthful people that you're talking to uh, or talking about in these internet forums. Something like uh, Wolf Warrior 2, which right. seems so clearly designed to give the people what you would think that they want. I'm curious if you can give me a little bit of sort of how things like that are received in the forums that you're looking online, okay. and if that's similarly seen sort of cynically. Okay, first of all, the same message are going to be received and interpreted very different by different communities. So in a way, I'm studying a specific community, the Voluntary 50s and Army, they occupy certain platforms more active on certain platforms than others. There are other groups of netizens who are going to be there. So in a way, they are competing to define the image of Xi, right? So yes, she visited a bond shop. That can be interpreted positively because that's an effort by the party secretary trying to get closer to the people, right? So there was a time he was interpreted kind of, you know, in a slightly more positive uh, uh, way kind of that negative way among certain groups of people. But you know, first of all, it's like it's a competition. Who have louder voices, right, might generate a bigger impact. And also the subsequent action by everybody, especially the government, she himself might help 
kind of add meaning to what has been done, right? So yes, you visited a barn shop, you're close to the people. But later, what you've done, really, you're trying to deal away with this then apparently, right, low class kind of people. Now, apparently, you are not that close to the people, so that would kind of twist the interpretation of she the bond, right? And also, we need a pool, right? I think the, you know, the government has done a stupid job in terms of censoring we need a pool, right? We need a pool is a pretty positive image. They could have used it as an opportunity to make she more relatable to the people. They didn't. They censored it. Then how people would interpret we need a pool. That's becoming a symbol of censorship, right? So whatever the state does is adding meaning to it. And also, there are different actors trying to engineer this. For instance, the grass mud horse. I didn't have the time to show you this video. It's like, it's Ai Weiwei singing grass mud horse song, right? Ai Weiwei is a kind of, you know, dissentful artist. I mean, people debate about him today. But anyways, he was kind of pretty uh, um, critical at that time, at least. The very act that he sang the grass mud horse interprets in the grass mud horse in certain ways, that would start spread and influence other people. So you see what I'm saying? So the kind of, the, the particular event we're talking about, the interpretation is fluid and can subject to changes and reinterpretation by different actors. Their kind of way to engineer the image, the kind of the phrase, or their action that helps people to rethink about those things, put it simply. Okay. Um, is it possible for people in China to access the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, gather that they are officially blocked, but are people able to work around those, those blocks? Motivated citizens are always able to, and there are different ways of doing it. One is actually they use a mature private network, what we call VPN. Initially, it was easy to circumvent the Great Firewall. When I was in college, it's like using a proxy or Tor Park, those kind of you know, browser uh, that would uh, actually allow you to. Now it's becoming more difficult under President Xi Jinping. Uh, but you can still use VPN and other ways. And also there are people inside China actually translating those stuff into Chinese and circulate uh, among people. Yes, so it's like, or they would kind of, some people read here and they started to circulate the information inside China. Not necessarily translating the whole story, but started to talk, talk about it. So there's kind of informal way of getting message or information through. But again, yes, they're blocked. They're blocked, actually New York Times got blocked because they revealed the hidden wealth of the kind of Premier Wen Jiabao's family. So uh, this is kind of the tricky part, a lot of the times, you are okay if you're not kind of making it personal, right? You're making it personal now. So Xi Jinping or Wen Jiabao would kind of take actions. A lot of the times general criticism is, is more tolerated than you attack an individual leader um, personally or his family or you are trying to stimulate a collective action. Those are the things that uh, the government is very uh, sensitive to. Yeah. Hi, I'm Keith, uh, actually with Foreign Policy Magazine, Hi. And, but I'm not a writer, so it's you know, on the sales side. Um, my question about Xi Jinping is actually about, uh, wasn't he supposed to um, nominate or so-called uh, a successor 
policy a couple of this year or more recently uh, mm -hmm. where he decided uh, against that and now you think he'll be a leader until he dies or is there a succession plan? <laughs> is he the Chinese policy or is uh, the party the policy? Is it the cult of person or the cult of... We need to collect the pension. Here's the thing, right? Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I got a little pissed off earlier this year when he did away with the presidential limits, uh, term limits, because he got tenured before me, right? <laughs> I haven't got tenured yet. Um, hopefully next year. But anyways, um, that's really a bad move from a lot of people's perspective, including those kind of supporters of the regime. Uh, because a lot of people believe that the term limits is kind of one of the achievements during the reform era that institutionalized succession provides a lot of stability to the regime. Um, so by doing away with it, it's kind of a real harm to the regime. And we still don't know actually why he did this because apparently he has better choice. Because as a party general secretary, there is no term limit. He can hold that position forever and give the position of the president of China to somebody else. He can still be the de facto leader uh, of China, just like Deng Xiaoping to a certain extent. Deng Xiaoping didn't even have to have any formal titles, right? He can still keep that formal title and continue to rule China, but kind of be safe. I mean, there's one motivation it might be that he felt unsafe, because if he steps down, there might be people kind of, you know, fighting back who were actually suppressed or cracked down during this huge anti-corruption campaign. Right? Um, but in terms of predicting what he is going to do there, um, I'm not quite sure. I think apparently he eliminated the term limits for a reason. And he perhaps wants to stay in power longer than everybody or most people expect or hope he would be there. It's like 10 years is actually, even though it's not as good as kind of, you know, a fully democratic open election. It's actually pretty good in terms of accountability because the worst case scenario is, yeah, I don't like you, but 10 years, you're gone, right? There is another chance of another leader coming into power who might be better or worse. But anyways, there's hope. Now there's no hope. So I really don't have enough information to predict his personal move. I think he will stay a little bit longer than kind of 10 years, um, will he stay in power forever? I'm not quite sure. The more kind of, you know, rational action would be kind of before his death, find another one who is loyal to him because that one person is going to be there longer than him, right? If you want to protect yourself, your offsprings, your political legacy even, right? So. Maybe he is trying to mimic Chairman Mao. Okay. First of all, um, it depends who you are, right? So so far, I haven't encountered too many troubles because I'm. A, a small potato there, right? Um, once you become more famous, you are on the spot there and the state is watching you more closely. The worst case scenario for us is that we get on the blacklist and then once we get back in China, we might got detained or whatever, right? 
so for those people who are speaking up on Weibo or WeChat, most of them are okay. So it, 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 they are not really kind of you know saying that we are going to have another Jasmine revolution, right? If they are just criticizing the government in one way or the other, or spreading rumor, right? So most of the time, most people get away <coughs> with it because the party and the government don't really have the capacity to suppress everyone. Um, some people get into trouble. That's more like kill the chicken to scare the monkey, right? So people get detained for a week or two weeks for spreading rumors. But you know, there are hundreds of people spreading rumors, but only one person getting detained. And a lot of the times, it's the local governments who did this because they want to contain the scandal. Um, and in general, probably also because the central government can hide behind using local governments uh, as political, uh, as kind of uh, scapegoats. So most people are okay, but um, some of the more kind of non-dissidents are more carefully watched. So the kind of if you're thinking about kind of the range of actions the government can take, it's like first of all they can ask to delete everything you published or a particular post you you published that can be removed, or they can kind of stop people from commenting on your post, or they can kind of suspend your account or eliminate your account. And they might detain you, or they might put you under home arrest, or they might charge you and put you in prison for years. Okay, so, but it's getting more and more dangerous, say, if you're either pointing to top leaders in person, or you are actually kind of trying to mobilize. So that's why students from Peking University got beaten up and detained and threatened in one way or the other because they are trying, they are so-called the Marxist Student Association and they are trying to support some of the workers' movement in Shenzhen and in other places. Um, those kind of students are suppressed uh, uh, very, very directly. Okay, and then there are other people like Tui Yongyan, right? It's very vocal there, but it's not really directly targeting the government um, kind of the system in general. He criticizes the government. Right now he's criticizing the Ministry of Agriculture, right? But he gets away with it because he has a huge supporting base, right? If you're trying to jail Tui Yongyan, then you're getting into trouble. But I bet the government has tried to kind of, you know, silence him in one way or the other. I think maybe he's also used as a tool by the government So this is kind of the tricky part, right? Um, they play multiple functions, and the government, and central government, local government sometimes have different incentives, and different groups, uh, agents, government sectors have different incentive structure and different interests. That's why I said, like, Ministry of Education apparently don't want campus forums, but uh, Communist Youth League thinks it's a useful tool, right? So yes, you're right. Yeah, thank you. So how about rhetoric or Please movements? Oh, I'm Yuja. I'm a college student. Um, how about movements or rhetoric that's not acutely political? For example, like the Me Too movement, social right. movements. Are those okay. censored as well? Because that can lead to, you know, lapidation and Okay. So it's not subject to us to interpret whether a particular movement is political or not. One. Point two any mobilization in China is deemed political. 
the government might be selectively tolerating certain types of movement. For instance, environmental protests sometimes are okayish, okay, um, but it will get censored or suppressed once you are trying to kind of you know create links across sectors and also across regions. So separate, small-scale, specific protests a lot of the times are tolerated. At least the central government are okay with it. Sometimes local governments would went for it and suppressing it because they don't want look bad in front of their superiors. Okay, but once you're trying to reach to create an alliance across regions, across sectors, or you know make it nationwide, then it's becoming problematic. Another thing is that uh, when it's linked to foreign actors, institutions, ideas, it's becoming a little bit more problematic. And uh, Me Too is actually um, censored to a certain extent. There's a little bit space for it. Again, this is kind of related to our discussion on censorship. The government has a very rich tool in terms of censoring stuff. Some of the terms are, or uh, events are absolute taboos. You can't touch them. Some of them are okay. Sometimes you can, you know, some of them you can talk about it certain times, sometimes not. And I've been actually observing some of those general criticisms, small-scale mundane complaints about very specific issues that are not threatening to the regime. They will get more censored during, say, the 19th Party Congress. So when the party feels necessary, they can tighten up control, um, increase the level of censorship or not. In terms of uh, uh, Me Too, it's generally censored, even though it, there's still space. I mean, I'm in multiple kind of WeChat groups. I still receive messages about Me Too movement. But you don't see a lot of those uh, uh, messages on kind of other platforms, or sometimes they got censored very quickly. Part of, re part of the reason is um, I think the universities are trying to mobilize and censor because they think that damages their, um, their, their, their image. And um, kind of can give you an example here, which is not directly about Me Too, but about Huan Gang, a Tsinghua University professor who kind of wrote about, say, China has surpassed the U.S. in terms of the uh, state uh, capacity. Um, but anyways, it's a ridiculous claim, not very kind of well-supported study. But anyways, th there's kind of a backlash towards this person. And Tsinghua University kind of requested censorship, saying that this is damaging the image of the regime. And then there's subsequent censorship. So sometimes the censorship is not necessarily initiated from top levels. How would you request censorship? So they would submit kind of a request through the propaganda system. Say, you know, this event is getting viral. It's kind of getting out of control. You'd better, you know, step in. And uh, the central propaganda department and uh, the censorship agencies are sending out uh, censorship directives daily to all the kind of online platforms saying you should delete this or tighten up control overall um, for a certain time period, all those kind of censorship directives. I'm curious. Please identify yourself. Oh, yeah. Martin Rupert, Columbia, um, I'm curious about your overall evaluation. Could you title talk contested? Right. So in other words, you feel this kind of maneuverability on both sides. Right. But I'm wondering, in terms of Xi Jinping's own concepts of 
so on, always influenced One of the ironies to me is that his father was one of the few people among the elders who was against the depression. Mm -hmm. Right. And yet I wonder if this is a counter-reaction to his father's position, or is still a kind of maneuverability in the sense that I still don't feel that he's in as complete control as most people. Okay. Um, this is a question that's out of my comfort zone because I don't really have data on what I'm going to say about it. Right, I don't study Xi Jinping himself and his father that closely. I study media politics, internet politics, and I can show you what she has done during his time in terms of his control uh, of the internet. So, um, Xi's personality, I don't really know too much. Uh, and it's actually sometimes pretty puzzling. We still kind of are struggling uh, in terms of understanding the anti-corruption campaign because l this literally pisses everybody off, right? If you're a rational person, you shouldn't have done that, right? Um, it, uh, so it's, it's hard to say. And uh, there are certain kind of you know, aspects showing that he's a nationalist, right? Uh, basically, it's more aggressive in terms of foreign policy in South China Sea and literally says, don't mess with us, kind of, you know, we're not the one making trouble across the globe. Allegedly, U.S. is doing this, right? And um, it's like um, there are also signs showing that he's kind of a little bit Maoist than a lot of people. Um, yes, his father might be a little bit liberal in his cohort, but I mean, can we directly compare Xi Jinping to his father? We don't know. And um, in, in addition to that, I think uh, one thing it's tricky uh, for us to understand is like, now, are we paying too much attention to Xi as an individual? Because there is a group of people around him. To what extent he's doing all this, right? And some of the things simply doesn't work to his advantage, right? The 50 Cent Army really damages his image rather than, you know, I, I suspect it's like local or lower level or even the propaganda system is trying to just please him. Right? It's like, see, we're doing all this great job trying to beautify you. They are not really kind of to kind of really beautify Xi, right? They don't care about the effect. So far as they have some kind of evidence to show to Xi is like, we've done the work, right? So it, it's, it's really hard for me to answer your question. Um, but in general, I, I mean, I'm, unfortunately, my overall assessment is that uh, China is more tightly controlled under Xi for whatever reason. And this is not really good for the resilience of the regime. In a way, it's like, yes, I suggested a status quo, a equilibrium, right? Um, because there's state, there's pro-regime uh, netizens, and there's regime critics. They're creating an equilibrium. But that equilibrium or status quo is tentative because you know people can shift their sides and can change their political beliefs. And what she does, a lot of the time, alienates rather than co-opts the voluntary 50 cent army I described. I've, uh, I've observed that. So it's really weakening the supporting base, weakening the supporting base of the regime, right? So if I'm, I mean, if I have a piece of advice for she is like, lose the control a little bit, okay? And also, you know, give more reason for the people to support you rather than taking those reasons away. 
Please, sir. Yes, um, Google is trying to get back into China. Do you think it will succeed? And what kind of compromises will it have to make? Okay. So Google withdrew from China in 2010 because they've had enough. Um, but apparently before that, they were collaborating with the, 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 the government, right? Um, so when they are trying to get back, I think it depends on to what extent they are going to kind of, you know, to, 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 um, to say, yes, we can take whatever, you know, the Chinese government offers. Uh, the Chinese government clearly are going to impose uh, some restrictions, right? You are going to sense, continue censor, and you have to base your server inside China, and you probably have to provide information to the government whenever the government requests it, right? So all those kind of things are clearly going to be there, and I think it depends whether Google can swallow that or not. Um, if they are really interested in getting back to China, I think they probably would have to. There's no choice for them. Um, unfortunately, many of those cross-national, multinational corporations are actually collaborating with the Chinese government, Volu involuntarily. Cisco, Microsoft, Yahoo used to, right? Uh, Google used to, at least. They're trying hard to get back to China, and Twitter and Facebook probably are willing to do a lot of things if the Chinese government says, okay, come in, right? So. I'd, I'd like to follow up with Keith again. Uh, okay, please. Do you have a comment or? I was just gonna ask about Google as well, oh. but so my next column up is how can they get a bad rap when you have Microsoft and Starbucks and Apple? I mean, they don't have, Apple always claims they don't have content, uh -huh. but yet, you know, if they're building all the, the phones there and everybody gets to use a phone, in China, aren't they complicit as well? But Google gets the bad rap because they're going to have to do some kind of censoring. How do you see that in, in the business of you know trade in general with China that's coming up so important right now? Right, I agree with you. I think Apple's problem is a lesser problem in that uh, you know it doesn't involve too much uh, in terms of information collecting and monitoring as we know, right? Um, um, because we don't know whether there are chips planted in. Um, I think that shouldn't be a huge concern. Uh, I don't think that's a huge concern, um, um, personally. But that might be a huge concern for many people. Um, Google, the problem with Google is that it directly involves of filtering, monitoring, collecting information. Um, and, and that's kind of a problem for Google, also given its motto of do no evil, right? Uh, apparently, a lot, m a lot of people are starting to question Google in terms of, you know, what Google is doing with the U.S. government already. And if they start collaborating with the Chinese government, um, there is going to be image loss uh, for Google. Um, and and um, as an individual, frankly speaking, um, it, the, the future is pretty um, yes, because the technology is working against us to a certain extent because it enables big actors like Google and authoritarian governments, you know, um, their ability to monitor us uh, more effectively and also collecting information more effectively. You've heard about this facial recognition technology, right? 
and frankly speaking, I'm using this cell phone, oh, not with me, but anyways, they know where I am if they want to know. And um, I've heard that uh, even if you turn off your cell phone, they can still listen to you. Okay. Um, but of course, the safety net for us is that we are one drop of water in the vast sea this moment. So that's the only way that protects us. So that's why I said it's like, don't get on the blacklist, right? Otherwise, you are going to encounter wars all around. Otherwise, you are generally safe as a small potato or a small fish in a pond. Okay, so, you know, Google, Apple, and all those service providers. I haven't heard l lately, so I don't know. And Facebook has a bigger problem if they're trying to enter China because they have real name registration, mostly, right? So it's easier for the government to track everybody down. Um, other forms of expression is a little bit more anonymous, even though if the government really tries to track down, they can't, right? So again, it's like it's to be, it's, it's safer to be one small drop of water in the sea rather than standing out in one way or, or the other. But real name is really kind of making it easy for the government to nap you when they want. Your book focuses domestically, mm -hmm. but there's been some talk in this country about China's cyber activity outward. Right. Could you comment a bit on that? More than happy to. So there are a lot of dimensions we can talk about. I'm not a computer scientist. I'm not, uh, I'm not going to talk about the technical aspect of it. But apparently, there are people saying that China is doing a cyber war, conducting a cyber war. Um, 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 I, I suspect that's going on. Um, I don't know to what extent um, uh, it's sponsored by the Chinese government. Some of them might be. Some of them might be by kind of companies or individuals in China. Right? There are netizen groups who call them the, the red hackers, right? So they are actually not, they might be co-opted by the state, but they are hacking in their kind of perception for the interest of China. So they are doing all those kind of things. And there are people who are just kind of hacking for hacks sake, uh, for hacking sake, right? Uh, like that. Um, this is all, uh, apparently going on there, but I think what is kind of more interesting here is like, you know, internet allows us to connect so it creates a relatively borderless space. So to a certain extent, considering what happened during the presidential election in 2016, really, we can't prevent foreign interference anymore, right? Yes, there are Russian bots, Russian trolls, probably Chinese trolls as well. But first of all, it's hard to distinguish them. And when we are able to distinguish them, um, sometimes, um, or find a large group of them, we're not able to distinguish them from those voluntary ones, and they evolve, right? A lot of the messages post, they post are not just false. It's kind of very carefully trying to manipulate people's uh, uh, kind of mindset and, and change people's perception. It's exactly what I just said in terms of kind of the Chinese intervention and the Taiwanese election, right? We don't know whether it's government sponsored or not, but there are a lot of people commenting there and kind of, you know, maybe they're just out of their own interest or they are really kind of, you know, voluntary 50 cent army or, you know, they're just making fun or having fun there. 
Um, so it's, it's hard to say because this is not just kind of have implications for democracy here because kind of the presence of intervention or interference is going to change people's mindset and their perception, fake spread of fake news and all those kind of things. But it's also kind of, you know, shaping those people who are interacting with the foreign uh, um, um, actors. For instance, when a Chinese netizen circumvent the Great Firewall and visited YouTube, they're interacting with people here, right? What they would get out of this is kind of an interesting question. And frankly speaking, a lot of the times what I found is not really kind of, you know, suddenly they become more liberal or democratic. No, they can be very defensive of the Chinese system. Or they become more defensive of the Chinese system because they saw what happens in Taiwan, for instance. They say, yeah, every four years or a few years you have election. But you're just wasting a lot of money and the resources and energy. Look at the leaders who produce, right? Tang Wen, they say she is incompetent and doing all those horrible things, right? Wasting all the resources and kind of, you know, wasting people's trust. Why do we need a democracy like that, right? They started to kind of, you know, so the implication is becoming cross-national and hard to contain. And I've also kind of studied one specific case which took place on Amazon. So there was a Chinese American entrepreneur who published a memoir, memoir um, in 2013. Um, allegedly, Chinese netizens find that, um, or found that uh, she faked a lot of the stories to please the American citizens. That's their claim. And they had, they launched a war against his book, posted hundreds of comments on the book, kind of giving his, assigning her book one star. So it's still there. You can check it out. It's actually, it's called Band Not Broke. Uh, Band Band Not Break uh, uh, by Mei Mei Fox and uh, uh, Ping Fu. Okay, so it's like, you know, they are trying to kind of engage a serious um, uh, debate with the US net uh, users on Amazon, trying to persuade them not to buy that book because they think it's fake. So it, it's kind of really hard to kind of say one thing that's set in stone in the internet age because everything is kind of so fluid and uh, interactive and uh, cross-boundary. Chris? Yes. Uh, Chris Harkins, I'm Harvard Institute. If you, um, uh, are there any websites not based in China that are covering the internet that you would recommend for somebody who wants to every now and then check and get a good summary of what's going on? I mean, for example, China Digital Times or any others? Do, do you like anybody in particular? Okay, um, this is a hard, hard job. China Digital Times is actually run by Xiao Chang, and um, uh, he is motivated in one sense, right? Um, he left China after 1989, and I'm, I'm actually, I know him very well. He's a kind of a friend, because uh, I was at Berkeley for my degree there. Um, so it's like you will get very rich information about internet politics in China, but from a particular perspective, right? Um, there's, there was uh, a kind of a blog site, I can email you uh, later, it's called East, West, South, North. Um, I don't know whether they're still updating as actively as they used to be, but they are capturing all the, a lot of the disputes or kind of, you know, uh, um, interactions in Chinese cyberspace um, um, and media sphere in general. Um, they used to be one of the kind of my favorite source. Um, 
Yes, because that, I recommend that because it's they're, they're translating everything. Um, so it's kind of easier uh, for, for people to follow. Yeah, other than that, it's kind of... Um, what about the Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are kind of... Yes. Yes, there are also other kind of sources like, like that uh, by people who are basically in academia um, and to a certain extent. But the tricky point of um, um, people in academia is like, to what extent can we devote the time to really up kind of covering everything, right? Um, and there are some of those email servers um, that are kind of among the Chinese specialists. Those are providing a lot of the information <laughs> There and also Citizen Lab at uh, Toronto University, they produce a lot of studies on censorship, which is very very interesting. And also uh, Hong Kong University, um, they have a lab as well, um, a media lab actually um, studying, watching the Chinese internet very closely. Yes, yeah, so those are basically the English sources, easier for people uh, to to watch and keep an eye on what's going on there. Yeah. I'm not trying to defend the Chinese government, so, and I'm not able to provide you any justification for censorship to a certain extent. I see myself as a constructive, uh, uh, critical uh, kind of person towards the current Chinese regime. And I think they're doing something good, but a lot of this is in bad ways. In terms of censorship, okay, um, I think, I mean, it's not my personal opinion, but I saw people defending censorship. Because if you do a survey among Chinese asking to what extent do you, say you agree with the government try to control online expression um, in certain ways, right? Um, there might be a high, pretty high percentage of people say, I mean, probably 40, 50% of people say, yes, we should regulate or control the internet to a certain extent. We side with the government or even more people. And I think there's a reason here, right? Here we are talking about kind of fake news, rumors, deception, 
and all those kind of things. There is a need to regulate online expression, especially when it's anonymous, because we don't know who is behind this particular expression, then you are not really responsible for what you're saying. There are a lot of things happening online that should be regulated and controlled, right? Uh, we haven't talked about cyberbullying, which is a problem here in China as well in, um, as in other places. Um, there is kind of about the rumors spreading across the globe, actually kind of creating problems. In India, there was kind of the rumors causing people bitten to death, right, because people taken that. And similar rumors are happening in China as well. So th the Chinese government do kind of see some justifications to control the Internet. And there was actually, uh, this is related to one earlier control effort in terms of, uh, say, the, the Internet cafes, right? China's internet cafes are very heavily regulated and controlled because you have to present an ID to really kind of get a machine there to, to start. And that was kind of the, a very important venue for people to get online in earlier years when people can't afford uh, computers. Um, one of the reasons why kind of people accept that regulation is that uh, there were a number of kind of, say, fire accidents okay, and cause deaths of people. So there is a popular demand for the government to impose tighter control over the internet cafes and the internet, and then the government used that as opportunity to also tighten control over the content because once you have your ID registered, right, they can check you up if you say something they don't want. So a lot of the times, censorship and control can hardly or cannot be distinguished from regulation. And sometimes we can't kind of, you know, just say what is the primary motive there um, behind the effort trying to control the information flow. Um, so I don't really kind of, you know, have any justification for censorship, especially when censorship is motivated by political suppression, right? So. We have come to the end of our time. Please join me in thanking Yuan Yin. And there are copies of his book outside for purchase. I imagine he'd be willing to sign them for you. Thank you. Yes, yes exactly.